Chapter Sixty of Barnaby Rudge, A Tale of the Riots of Eighty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Barnaby Rudge, A Tale of the Riots of Eighty by Charles Dickens. Chapter Sixty. The three worthies turned their faces towards the boot, with the intention of passing the night in that place of rendezvous and of seeking the repose they so much needed in the shelter of their old den. For now that the mischief and destruction they had purposed were achieved, and their prisoners were safely bestowed for the night, they began to be conscious of exhaustion, and to feel the wasting effects of the madness which had led to such deplorable results. Notwithstanding the lassitude and fatigue which oppressed him now, in common with his two companions, and indeed with all who had taken an active share in that night's work, Hugh's boisterous merriment broke out afresh whenever he looked at Simon Tappertit, and vented itself, much to that gentleman's indignation, in such shouts of laughter as bade fair to bring the watch upon them, and involve them in a skirmish to which in their present worn-out condition they might prove by no means equal. Even Mr. Dennis, who was not at all particular on the score of gravity or dignity, and who had a great relish for his young friend's eccentric humours, took occasion to remonstrate with him on this imprudent behaviour, which he held to be a species of suicide, tantamount to a man's working himself off, without being overtaken by the law, than which he could imagine nothing more ridiculous or impertinent. Not abating one jot of his noisy mirth for these remonstrances, Hugh reeled along between them, having an arm of each, until they hove in sight of the boot, and were within a field or two of that convenient tavern. He happened by great good luck to have roared and shouted himself into silence by this time. They were proceeding onward without noise, when a scout who had been creeping about the ditches all night to warn any stragglers from encroaching further on what was now such dangerous ground, peeped cautiously from his hiding-place and called to them to stop. "'Stop? And why?' said Hugh. "'Because,' the scout replied, the house was filled with constables and soldiers, having been surprised that afternoon. The inmates had fled, or been taken into custody, he could not say which. He had prevented a great many people from approaching nearer, and he believed they had gone to the markets and such places to pass the night. He had seen the distant fires, but they were all out now. He had heard the people who passed and repassed speaking of them too, and could report that the prevailing opinion was one of apprehension and dismay. He had not heard a word of Barnaby, didn't even know his name, but it had been said in his hearing that some man had been taken and carried off to Newgate. Whether this was true or false, he could not affirm. The three took counsel together on hearing this, and debated what it might be best to do. Hugh, deeming it possible that Barnaby was in the hands of the soldiers, and at that moment under detention at the boot, was for advancing stealthily, and firing the house. But his companions, who objected to such rash measures, unless they had a crowd at their backs, represented that if Barnaby were taken, he had assuredly been removed to a stronger prison. They would never have dreamed of keeping him all night in a place so weak and open to attack. Yielding to this reasoning, and to their persuasions, Hugh consented to turn back, and to repair to Fleet Market, for which place, it seemed, a few of their boldest associates had shaped their course on receiving the same intelligence. Feeling their strengths recruited and their spirits roused, now that there was a new necessity for action, they hurried away, 
quite forgetful of the fatigue under which they had been sinking but a few minutes before, and soon arrived at their new place of destination. Fleet Market, at that time, was a long, irregular row of wooden sheds and penthouses, occupying the centre of what is now called Farringdon Street. They were jumbled together in the most unsightly fashion, in the middle of the road, to the great obstruction of the thoroughfare, and the annoyance of passengers, who were fain to make their way, as they best could, among carts, baskets, barrows, trucks, casks, bulks, and benches, and to jostle with porters, hucksters, waggoners, and a motley crowd of buyers, sellers, pickpockets, vagrants, and idlers. The air was perfumed with the stench of rotten leaves, and faded fruit, the refuse of the butcher's stores, and offal and garbage of a hundred kinds. It was indispensable to most public conveniences in those days, that they should be public nuisances likewise, and Fleet Market maintained the principle to admiration. To this place, perhaps because its sheds and baskets were a tolerable substitute for beds, or perhaps because it afforded the means of a hasty barricade in case of need, many of the rioters had straggled, not only that night, but for two or three nights before. It was now broad day, but the morning being cold, a group of them were gathered round a fire in a public-house, drinking hot pearl, and smoking pipes, and planning new schemes for to-morrow. Hugh and his two friends, being known to most of these men, were received with signal marks of approbation, and inducted into the most honourable seats. The room-door was closed and fastened to keep intruders at a distance, and then they proceeded to exchange news. "'The soldiers have taken possession of the boot, I hear,' said Hugh. "'Who knows anything about it?' Several cried that they did, but the majority of the company having been engaged in the assault upon the warren, and all present having been concerned in one or other of the night's expeditions, it proved that they knew no more than Hugh himself, having been merely warned by each other, or by the scout, and knowing nothing of their own knowledge. "'We left a man on guard there to-day,' said Hugh, looking round him. "'Who's not here? You know who it is. Barnaby, who brought the soldier down at Westminster. Has any man seen or heard of him?' They shook their heads, and murmured an answer in the negative, as each man looked round and appealed to his fellow, when a noise was heard without, and a man was heard to say that he wanted Hugh, that he must see Hugh. "'Here's but one man,' cried Hugh to those who kept the door. "'Let him come in.' "'Aye, aye,' muttered the others. "'Let him come in. Let him come in.' The door was accordingly unlocked and opened. A one-armed man, with his head and face tied up with a bloody cloth, as though he had been severely beaten, his clothes torn, and his remaining hand grasping a thick stick, rushed in among them, and, panting for Beth, demanded which was Hugh. "'Here he is,' replied the person he inquired for. "'I am Hugh. What do you want with me?' "'I have a message for you,' said the man. "'You know one, Barnaby?' "'What of him?' "'Did he send a message?' "'Yes. He's taken. He's in one of the strong cells in Newgate. He defended himself as well as he could, but was overpowered by numbers. That's his message.' "'When did you see him?' asked Hugh hastily. "'On his way to prison, where he was taken by a party of soldiers. 
They took a by-road, and not the one we expected. I was one of the few who tried to rescue him, and he called to me, and told me to tell Hugh where he was. We made a good struggle, though it failed. Look here. He pointed to his dress, and to his bandaged head, and still panting for breath, glanced round the room, and faced towards Hugh again. "'I know you, by sight,' he said, "'for I was in the crowd on Friday, and on Saturday and, and yesterday, "'but I didn't know your name. "'You're a bold fellow. "'I know. <laughs> "'So is he. "'He fought like a lion tonight. "'But it was of no use. "'I did my best, considering that I want this limb.' "'Again he glanced inquisitively round the room, "'or seemed to do so,' for his face was nearly hidden by the bandage, and again facing sharply towards Hugh, grasped his stick as if he half expected to be set upon, and stood on the defensive. If he had any such apprehension, however, he was speedily reassured by the demeanour of all present. None thought of the bearer of the tidings. He was lost in the news he brought. Oaths, threats, and execrations were vented on all sides— some cry that if they bore this tamely, another day would see them all in jail, some that they should have rescued the other prisoners, and this would not have happened. One man cried in a loud voice, "'Who follow me to Newgate?' And there was a loud shout and general rush towards the door. But Hugh and Dennis stood with their backs against it, and kept them back, until the clamour had so far subsided that their voices could be heard when they called to them together that to go now, in broad day, would be madness, and that if they waited until night, and arranged a plan of attack, they might release not only their own companions, but all the prisoners, and burn down the jail. "'Not that jail alone,' cried Hugh, "'but every jail in London. They shall have no place to put their prisoners in. We'll burn them all down, make bonfires of them.' "'Every one! Here!' he cried, catching at the hangman's hand. "'Let all who are men here join with us. "'Shake hands upon it. "'Barnaby out of jail, and not a jail left standing. "'Who joins?' "'Every man there, and they swore a great oath "'to release their friends from Newgate next night, "'to force the doors and burn the jail, "'or perish in the fire themselves.' End of chapter 60